Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Look, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. No, when it comes to things short. Go on. I'm five, five. helping Oliver. When it comes to opera, we're the only ones bringing you everything you need to know about the art form, the people, and the stories every damn week. And you always pronounce them so well. Check it out. <laughs> five bucks buys an ad on social media. Ten bucks covers our website for a month. And twenty bucks makes a hundred lapel pins. So there are like maybe a hundred people in this world that have a lapel pin. So we want to double that number. Seriously, right. 20 bucks. That's less than what Oliver spends each week on light-bodied red wines, whatever they are. <laughs> like Gamay, you know, like a Cru Beaujolais, you know. Don't think it can give? Yes, you can. Simply review us on Apple Podcasts, share our Facebook posts, or retweet us. Most of all, keep listening to America's Talk radio show about opera. Oh. Okay, that was too many calls to action. So the main call to action is give us money, because that's obviously how you can help us. The other thing you can do is review us on iTunes, is that what you said? So if you don't feel like giving us money and you don't feel like spending precious time typing, what you can do is just click that share button when you see our post on Facebook, and you could like our page, actually. If you like our page, that helps us get to more people because Facebook is evil, and it basically helps us see your friends. Most of all, <laughs> keep listening to America's Talk radio show about opera. Enjoy the podcast. And retweet, because Toby loves that. <laughs> Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. Here in the Lakeside Studio, we are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined tonight by Oliver Camacho and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, tonight we're talking about Opera America, which is preparing for its 50th anniversary celebrations in 2020. What is it? Why is it important? And what is its place in the, his- in the history of opera now that it's been around for almost half a century? We'll try to answer those questions in segment two. But first, we go inside the huddle with mezzo-soprano Lindsay Metzger. We'll ask her about her upcoming appearance in Chicago for Haymarket Opera Company's upcoming production of The Dragon of Wantley, among other things. Plus, in the two-minute drill, Tubin Meta retires Two friends of the podcast win big at the Gramophone Awards, and so, so much more. And of course, you can call us on air and get your voice heard. 847 866 WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories. That's 847 866 9687, or tweet us at Opera Box Score or post on our Facebook page. And now, without further ado, Oliver Camacho, how's it going? It's going so good. I got a review in the Chicago Classical Review, and it wasn't Ooh. bad. Ooh. <laughs> Wow, look at you go. Yeah, I think they called me a warm tenor. (laughs) I often think that you're a warm tenor. Uh, That's Ashley Hardgrave, of course. What sort of uh, tenor would you be if you could be a tenor, Ashley? I would be scrappy. (laughs) (laughs) I like to think I'd be a scrappy tenor, too, but I I think I've... uh, I'm all about the... That bass, as it were. No treble. Uh, no treble. Yeah. No treble at all. All right. <laughs> so uh, I have nothing about sports. Uh, all I know, once again, roll tide. That's all I need to know at this Boo. point in fall. I'm going to say that every week. Again, because <laughs> the Arkansas native has to say that to the Alabama native every time. That's fair. Uh, let's talk about the World Series. The Washington Nationals are going to the World Series. This is a big deal for the seven people that like the Washington Nationals. Look at them going. What is so the mascot for the them. Nationals? 
Miles? Is it a senator? There, it's just a, <laughs> it's just a big W and mild fiscal corruption. That's all, it is. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I think on that way, we just need to talk about some opera real quick. Huddle up, let's go inside the huddle. That's right. You're listening to Opera Box Score, and in the studio tonight we have a very special guest. Uh, Oliver, would you mind introducing? Yeah, but can we hear a little song? Oh, first? let's do. Let's yeah. do. Uh, this is a little a little clip of the person we're about to listen to talk. Now you can introduce our guest. So <laughs> here's the thing. Um, you know, everybody knows that in Chicago, I'm like the guy that goes to everything. And one this year, one year I went to this concert in a church. Uh, there's this church in uh, what's called the Gold Coast. Uh, the Gold, yeah, Gold, Gold Coast. Gold Coast. Yeah. Um, which is like the world the rich people live in Chicago. Hey, I live there. <laughs> I not, what are you doing over there? <laughs> so it's this church that has a really robust music program. And the director there... Um, produces these extra concerts that just happen like in the fellowship hall and whatnot. And I remember going to one of these um, because I knew of a tenor who I was in love with was singing in it. And I heard this mezzo-soprano, Lindsay Metzger, and she was singing Cendrillon. And you must have been like 20 years old or something like that. (laughs) Do you remember what I'm talking about? (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, who is this woman? Because she's, I mean, she was still, you were still in school, weren't you when that happened? Oh yeah, definitely like perfect for pants rolls like slender tall but strikingly beautiful with hair for days and like <laughs> the most perfect just the right amount of moisture skin like type of thing i was like okay Gross. Some, I'm blushing. something's so gonna happen how ha- was the voice oliver well Let's something i knew that something was gonna happen to this singer and then lo and behold a few years later she was after doing uh saint uh Des Moines and Florentine Opera Young Artist Program, she was invited to be a part of the Ryan Opera Center, where she completed three years recently, and now she's out in the world. Mm, yeah. <laughs> she's uncaged. Very exciting. <laughs> yeah. So that is Lindsay Metzger, and she's joining us in studio right Hello. now. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. So, so happy to be here. We're happy to have you. <laughs> so we were just talking about you being from Mundelein. Yes. And you went to DePaul. I did. Yeah. I think you're like our third. De- we had Janae. Uh, Janai Brugger on. Oh, yes. And we had mm-hmm. another DePaul person. I can't think of her now. Same to love. Yeah. Yes. But um, no, so what is it like to be, uh, you know, a Chicago-grown and trained artist coming back to work professionally? Well, Chicago is, as you know, such a rich city for music and for artists. I just think it was the best place to train as a young singer in school and then also to come back and complete my you know quote-unquote training years as a young artist and now to be back here professionally it's just it's it's wonderful I'm having a great time you know it's it's wonderful to be a part of a a company like Haymarket who rehires local singers all the Mm -hmm. time and um, we, I think as Chicagoans love to see those singers come back and work with people and you recognize names and it's just, it's a great, it's a great experience. It's so, sort of like having your own ensemble, Chicagoland ensemble, 
um, sort of like they do in European companies. Yeah, um, we were talking before the before the broadcast started about started about how you have created like your own audience being a Ryan Opera Center member, but now they need a place to hear you sing. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, when you study here and then you work here for years, you cultivate a community of people and a network of people who support you. And now it's great to be like, I'm here performing. Yes. You don't have to travel to wherever to come see me. It's it's really luxurious and for my family as well. So we want to talk about Ryan Opera Center because you're one of the first we've had on the air who has recently completed the program. Mm -hmm. And we've had some who've done it in its early iterations, but um, you are part of like what I think now is one of the best things that's happening in Chicago as far as training and identifying talent. And so many singers that are that have done the program and are doing it now are people like, yes, I will pay to hear that person mm -hmm. when they're when they're done now. But like when they're working professionally, like you know, everybody knows I'm in love with Mario Rojas. <laughs> it's no secret. <laughs> it is no secret. Yeah. Who isn't? Yeah. Who isn't? Yeah. I roll. <laughs> yeah, but um, can you tell us about some of your experiences over there and maybe some of this opportunities that were very unique to that program that you had? Oh my gosh, there's so many. Um, I'm lucky enough to say that there's so many. I, I mean, my first, my first ever assignment there was... Um, covering Liz DeShong in the the Stars of Lyric concert where she was singing Non Pumesta and then the duet with Larry Brownlee. And here I show up, this like noob just coming into this program and my responsibility is to cover this in front of this huge crowd. Oh, did, she, did she sing the concert? <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. Thankfully. <laughs> Thankfully she went on. And she was healthy, I mean, of course. Yeah. But it's just the thought. You so know? for those of you who are, don't understand what we're talking about, um, Lyric Opera, to kick off their season, does a free concert in what's called Millennium Park, which is, mm -hmm. um, you know, the biggest you know, venue that you could possibly sing in. Uh, it has 4,000 seats and then a lawn that holds another 7,000 people. Mm -hmm. So that performance is typically at capacity. And it's yeah. like the biggest marketing uh, event of the year for it's Lyric great. Opera. Yeah. It's a wonderful event. Mm -hmm. But it was just the first thing I had to do. And so, of course, I was just terrified. Um, but, you know, the opportunities, the people that you stand on the stage with, Ferruccio Furlanetto, Susan Graham, I mean, the list goes on and on. Of course, they're escaping my brain at this moment. <laughs> but the directors you get to work with, the conductors, it's, it's really, it's living the dream. It really is. I mean, as a young singer, you couldn't ask for anything better. And, of course, I mean, there are... The moments where you are incredibly stressed, you've been at the opera house for 50 hours that week. It's it's extremely exhausting, mm. but you learn so much about yourself and so much about the business and your colleagues. And because you, those are the people who you run into for the rest of your careers is the sure. people you're you're in the young artist programs with. What's a what's something at the Ryan Center that you learned that surprised you that like you were not expecting to learn or grasp or get? Oh. While you think about the your yeah. answer, I'm going to just give my own like observation. Um, I had the opportunity to see uh, many of the Rising Stars concerts mm -hmm. and also this event that is called Beyond the Aria, which is a very exclusive mm -hmm. event. And just within the three years that she was in the program, um, the way she became more um, commanding on stage, just like being so confident and like embodying the music and being able to get up on stage and sing with the orchestra and sing like something like Parto or was it Parto? Sing, no, you sang De Per Questo. Yeah. 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 Which is like whatever, nine minute aria, you so, know? Uh, yeah. And just, and you have nobody to act with and you're just on stage wearing a dress and like you're alone, you know? Like, <laughs> 
And the, it sounds yeah. terrifying yeah. just hear you talking yeah. about it. I'm like getting yeah. scared. She's no. getting chest pain. She's no, visibly sweating. But it was so. it was a moment. Like it was yeah. a very, very powerful experience to be in the audience like, oh my God, that's the girl that I saw singing in a church basement. You know? Isn't that bizarre? Yeah. It's such yeah. a strange life. Yeah. But I anyway, mean, but your story. So. It's it's that, you know, just just being able to do that, having the confidence to do that and to know and feel good about it. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, this is so strange, but I never thought I would sing Wagner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Never. But yeah. then, you know, this new production came in and I was assigned to understudy one of the Rhine Maidens. And learning that music was so, it opened my eyes in so many ways. I just never really quite understood, Under I, I didn't quite understand how, important Wagner was oh, until Lindsay, I Lindsay, you're making me so life, happy right now. How great it was to sing it <laughs> and uh, you know, the orchestration and all that. It, I, it was special. Well, I do think that's actually kind of a common story, especially mm-hmm. when we're coming up as young singers. You know, there aren't many 17, 18, 19 year old singers where we're going to be like, you know what? You need to sing Wagner. Like that's the <laughs> thing that happens. You know, we have to grow up, whether it's vocally, whether it's physically, whether it's emotionally, whatever. So, so yeah, that moment when you, when you move into something like Wagner, it, right. it really is like, it's a coming of age, I think in some ways. And I mean, I'm not saying that I'm about to go sing Brunhilde anywhere. <laughs> no, but, no, but, but even getting close to it, even getting close to it is something I, I was like, oh my gosh, I never knew. So it but was, you have to learn how to sing in that space. And yes, then once, right. once you get, that technique and then you start trying to sing like art songs like like all of a sudden everything is loud yeah <laughs> right. well and that's a whole technique in itself learning yeah. how to sing in a big opera house like that mm-hmm. and then acting and communicating with people on stage when you want to look them in the eye but you can't sing into the wings it's a whole you know it's a good good lessons to learn oh, well we're going to talk about singing on the micro level very shortly <laughs> but um can you tell us like, maybe a few anecdotes about Experiences at Ryan Opera Center. I, I hear there's a really great Susan Graham moment <laughs> that oh, I yeah. need to know about. It was special. Um, we were doing Trouble in Tahiti. It was one of my last uh, assignments as a young artist. And Susan Graham and Nathan Gunn in the main roles. And so I'm understudying and we're in the room rehearsing. And Susan was, um, how do I say, m- missing a couple words. <laughs> and she looked at me. As if I were, you know, she wanted me to cue her. And so I ended up standing in the corner, like shouting words, her words at her and, and, um, you know, feeding her her lines. And in any sort of situation, I mean, you would never do this. No young artist is going to get up from their corner seat and start shouting the words to a, you know, a famous diva like Susan Graham. But she wanted it and she was asking for it. So. I did it, and it was hilarious, and I won't ever forget it. Well, she's also, like, a very tall woman, but yeah. my experience with her, I actually waited on her. This is an embarrassing story, but, like, she sat down with Paul Groves at, like, my table, and I was waiting tables one day, and I was like, yeah. And I was like, she's so sweet. She's so oh, yeah. down down to earth, you know? She's hilarious. She's a riot in the room. I've I fell in love with her. I mean, I love her, and she's an idol of mine, of course. Um, so it was just a really funny experience, and I never dreamed would actually happen. Uh, follow-up question, how many people did you text immediately <laughs> when you left that room? Well, a bunch of my friends were in the room, so I really didn't have that many people to tell, and it was just, the whole thing was really funny. So we all had a good laugh, and I thought, I mean, I'm not going to just spread around that Susan Graham was, you know, needing her words, but... It happens. It happens to everyone. Well, yeah. you, you touch upon the friendships that you made at Ryan Opera Center, and that's obviously a very personal experience. But mm-hmm. there's one way 
that we can all kind of get an idea of what those friendships were like because you and uh, bass Patrick Weddy mm-hmm. and soprano Diana Newman and soprano Anne Toomey <laughs> started doing these videos that were so <laughs> incredible. And they even made it like, I forget what blog wrote about them, but they're like, really? Du- yeah, there was like, they were dub smash videos, right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, Anne was doing the dub smash videos with her Electrocast. Yeah. And then Diana and I made <laughs> videos during our Carmen run right. that were a little like telenovela esque. 10 second videos they're on my Facebook do yeah. you know how much joy it brings me to hear words like Deb Smash and Electra and Carmen and Telenovela they're, together they're so you know? good what a time to be alive when it, it was, was when it, like what is this life but it it was one of the most fun I've ever some of the most fun I've ever had yeah and um, they're they're joyful to watch actually they, they brought me out of pleasure silly. So. if you go back you. if you go back in our episode archives you'll see just a series of episodes where we all talk about the latest dub smash that came in from one of the two casts it's it's it's, a, it's amazing I, we I... could probably put a link to it on our website oh, let's let's do that yeah. if we can find them so let's turn now to Haymarket because we only have a few minutes left yeah absolutely um, so uh, you are starring in um, a production that's getting a lot of buzz, at least in the early music world. <gasps> yeah. um, it's uh, Haymarket Opera's uh, season opener, The Dragon of Wantley. Who's the composer again? God, what's his name? John Friedrich oh. Lamp. Okay. okay. And I it's love a, Lamp. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a ballad opera, sort of the way Beggar's Opera is a ballad opera. Yeah. Yeah. But this one is uh, has dragons. Yes. And you're going back to a company you started with before you were a Ryan Opera Center yep. singer. They gave me my first chance. Uh, yeah, tw- 2011 was their first season, and I was a part of their um, Charpentier opera. We had a great time. And now they've grown and grown and grown, and yes. that brings me so much joy to see that. It's really wonderful. So now I'm back in this role of Moxalinda, who's A woman. Of, I compare her to, like, Donna Elvira, mm-hmm. where she's... I don't want to call her the jilted lover, but she had him first, mm. and she's just a little bit more aggressive she's and got a little rights. bit um, sharper, can Fair. we say? Fair. And so she's willing to do whatever it takes to get her man back, and it's a hilarious piece. I didn't know it was going to be this funny. Um, it's very much a Monty Python esque British humor comedy. I love it, um, and uh, it's a small cast, so we're really on the stage the whole time, but. But you're also working on your broke chops while you're there, right? Do you have? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because there are certain gestures that we need, and especially in in a comedic sense, the mm-hmm. gestures for for comedy and a seria serious opera are totally different. Mm. Um, so hmm. this give we have a little bit more liberty to sort of do to to expand our gestures. Whereas if we were in a more serious dramatic piece we would be, I think, more limited. Mm-hmm. So Kim kind of takes care of my, the soprano. Kimberly McCord, yeah. Yes, yeah. she sort of takes care of kind of the serious gestures where I sort of am the, making a bit of a mockery in, at times. Okay, and then singing in this time, and like you, we were just talking about how you were singing in a barn not too long mm-hmm. ago, and now you're singing at the Studebaker Theater, yes. which isn't exactly a tiny space, but no. it's way more intimate. And you can do a lot more things with your voice that you weren't doing before. Absolutely. So how is it to get back into early music and to just not have to sing so loud? <laughs> I love it so much. I mean, I can I say that lightly, but it, it I really do. It's it's the way that this music was intended and it allows the singers to do sort of almost whatever they want in terms of dynamics and just making music. It, it's so lovely and 
the audience, I think, has a much more intimate experience. You, the subtlety of the gestures that we're performing, everyone can see them. Mm-hmm. No one, you know, it's it's just a wonderful. It's it's the way it was intended, and and I love performing at this sort of level. It's sort of it's more. I don't know. Just I think you can you can just do more. Yeah, you feel like you're in control of your artistry. You're yeah. you're in total control, and there's much more play and. Um, we can just work together in in this really great way, and the audience can see that directly and not just hear it, you know? Because mm-hmm. sometimes in a large theater, you're getting the gist of the gestures and the and the the acting, but but here, sure. you can see it up close. No, it has to be really big for people to even know. And right. that's I actually have to say something about Danielle Denise. Mm-hmm. I don't know why she just came to my head now, but like I feel like she's one of the <laughs> performers. That from far away you get what she's doing. Yes, because her things are so big, but it's a she does a lot. Yes, you know, so she develops a character through just being hyper. On stage. Absolutely, and when you're on stage or near her, yeah. you're like, "What the heck is she doing? Yeah, yeah. why is she smiling so big?" <laughs> yeah. And then you see it, and you think, "Oh, that's why." Yeah, which is again a lesson that you're that you learn and that i learned as a young artist mm. just those little tricks that mm. nobody ever teaches you you just yeah. observe them give us a trick like oh, put vaseline God. in your teeth or something like that or <laughs> put on oh, bigger bigger lashes <laughs> oh always with the lashes uh, i actually oh, yeah. saw a, a makeup tutorial trixie mattel is that a yes. Yes, yeah. yeah she was giving a makeup tutorial and like she like buys cheap lashes and like puts them on top of each other like oh, to make them actually yeah stacks oh, yeah, them yeah. and then yeah. like it's like it's like a butterfly is stuck to her eye or something like yeah. that so i would be the person where half of it would just be flopping <laughs> off though and you the whole night would just be poking me in my eye <laughs> yeah we lady singers we gotta lash up it's key it's that's very right. important that's right that's fun we love a glam moment <laughs> well you are a very glamorous person and um maybe we'll close with um a question about glamour and beauty standards yes, in, in opera and um i don't know i mean it's it's a hard question to navigate maybe ashley yeah. can help me well, phrase it a little bit so I, I think part of it you know specifically for you i think it also has to do with with voice type and the types of roles that you play like Absolutely. if you you know listeners if you've never if you've never seen miss metzger she is a delight but she is also very lovely she's tall and she's very stylish and has an awesome head of hair and has curly girls yes yeah. our, our <laughs> texture is really rocking out today but also you know you mentioned earlier oliver you know you're on stage you're in a gown doing this but yeah. a lot of the roles that you have I mean you're singing pants rolls and yeah. so for you I think I, I would I would wonder what it's like to kind of navigate those spaces mm-hmm. and those worlds being mm-hmm. you know being somebody who is who is you know attractive and stylish and, and presents very feminine but then is also kind of shifting very quickly and going into that pants right. roll world so what is that like for you to kind of go back and forth between those two? well that's exactly what it is it's a quick shift mm-hmm. yeah. and especially in an audition setting where you're actually wearing a dress or right. whatever and you're singing but you please know, pretend I'm a man for a second yeah. Yeah. exactly yeah, yeah. you have you have to just kind of flip a switch mm-hmm. and and it can be difficult but I think at some point early on I sort of chose this fuck because of the way you know we have to take into account our appearance and and what our physique is and if I'm tall and slender then I'm really easily going to fit into a pair of slacks and just be able to run around and hide under the couch as a carabino things Mm -hmm. like that where you you know and that was what spoke to me right um I love playing pants roles it is 
my favorite. I don't know why. It's just it comes very natural to me to act as a 15 year old boy. So <laughs> I don't know what that says me, about me. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> but it's always just been something that I've loved and um, really hope to do as much as I can until I don't sell as a young boy anymore. Well, which... Frederica von Stade did it forever. I know. You know? <laughs> so... I know. And I'm going to milk it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's going to have to pull me out of, the, out of those trousers. <laughs> so, I mean, it's... And it's, it is a tough conversation to have because mm -hmm. there is a lot of talk about appearance and right. the way people look in opera and it's tough. And I just want everyone to be, and I think it's important for all of us as singers and performers to empower each other. And what that's what makes everyone unique. Mm -hmm. And in voice, in appearance, that's what's special about us as performers. And I think we need to just celebrate that instead of trying to squash people in a little box and do, this is what we think you should look like. Let's, how about we just look the way we do and and be great at it absolutely do you feel that i mean because you 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 came of age you know at a certain time mm -hmm. and but in the last couple of years we've really started to see that you know those boxes kind of get broken down and 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 they kind of disappear a little bit right are you feeling that as you're moving forward in your career you're seeing you're seeing less of those expectations i think so yeah. i mean the best part about this job and about being a singer and a performer is what makes you uniquely you is what you're that's what you're selling that's right. your product yeah. and that is what i have to be always true to mm -hmm. once we start pulling everyone else's ideas into our own head that's when things get jumbled and you lose your sense of self and For i sure. think when we are our truest and we have clarity and we're open and vulnerable that's what people want and mm -hmm. that's what we want to give right so we can only do that if we feel great and you know feel the support of the, everyone the dragon of wanley opens sunday october 27th and uh, a second performance on tuesday october 29th here in chicago at the studebaker theater with the haymarket opera company Lindsay metzger thank you so much for being on opera box score i am yeah. so honored thank you for having me once again you can get those tickets at haymarketopera.org uh once again thank you to Lindsay for hanging around with us for a little bit but we got we're going to move on opera america is gearing up for its 50th anniversary this year as we wish it a Happy birthday. We'll talk about what makes the organization special and how it's changing the world of opera. That's next, only on America's talk radio show about opera on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score is provided by the Boston Early Music Festival. Join one of the world's leading Baroque opera specialists, soprano Karina Govan. She is not just one of the leading Baroque opera specialists. She's also one of the leading just people. In period. The <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I have heard her perform so many times, and she's always like the show stealer 
and the voice is incredible and she doesn't have to do much like with her body she just like stands there and does it and like you're like yes she's like please. the yeah. opera box score of people she is she's she's the, uh, <laughs> so join the opera box score magical bodied wonderful human soprano Karina Govan for the opening concert of the Boston Early Music Festival's 30th anniversary season a three time Grammy nominee Govan joins forces with the world class Pacific Baroque Orchestra led by virtuoso harpsichordist Alexander Weimann true story uh, my greatest opera role I've ever performed was conducted by Alexander Weimann. Oh, really? What was yeah. it? It's Pamphilius in Konradi's Die Schöne und Getreue Ariadne. That great classic everyone <laughs> knows you. and loves. Gesundheit. <laughs> the program features captivating survey of Baroque opera from the court of St. Petersburg. Enjoy brilliant arias by master composers, including Gluck, Hasse, Bortniansky and others. Sunday, October 27th, coming up real soon at 4 p.m. at the Emanuel Church in Boston. That's where Louise Huntley-Berson did all her concerts. Don't miss the star of Boston Early Music Festival centerpiece operas, Karina Govan with Pacific Baroque Orchestra, Sunday, October 27th. For tickets and more info, go to BEMF.org. Or BEMF. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. That's right. We're back at it again with a Chalk Talk segment here on Opera Box Score. Ashley, we're talking about Opera America. We sure are. So when Opera America was formed in 1970, uh, the state of opera in the United States was a bit different than it is now. Music education had only recently been dropping off of various school programs, and the financial models major opera companies uh, had been relying on for you know the better part of the uh, uh, half century or more uh, were beginning to kind of fall away, and, di- and different models of financial success uh, mm-hmm. became sort of prevalent. And uh, when uh, and so Opera America about 50 years ago uh, uh, um, got together in order to create this network of a cooperative organization um, that really supports opera companies across the United States, uh, just kind of in a nutshell. Um, and I think it's a very interesting model, um, but it's also one that is not necessarily uh, without. Uh, I wouldn't say drawback necessarily, but it's not how it's always been done. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now, uh, uh, when you think you're a bit more of a singer than I am, you probably have more of an experience uh, to a, to some degree uh, as to what Opera America actually means to singers and to performers. Uh, do you have any uh, insights into that for me? Well, yeah. I mean, I think I think as with any good nonprofit or as any no- good nonprofit employee, which I am, uh, happens to do, you know, is, is you, you go back to the mission. You go right. back to the mission. So you've talked about what it is, but if we really boil down the mission of Opera America, it's Opera America, pardon me, is dedicated to supporting the creation, presentation, and enjoyment of opera, which, I mean, what a, what a great distilled statement for, for exactly <laughs> what that is. It looks real good posted on a website. It sure <laughs> does. It sure does. You know, I think the things that Opera America is really great at, uh, I think they're really great at supporting education programs, audience mm-hmm. development. Uh, those are some things that I've really seen them kind of take the lead on uh, and just really increasing any type of form of opera appreciation. And also just, you know, 
supporting, you know, supporting yes. the staffs of these different companies. And if there's, you know, if there's a if there's a hole that needs filling or they need help with a very specific set of support, you know, just in keeping the lights on and keeping the business going. You know, I think Opera America has been really good for that. As a singer, um, I, I loved their space. I loved going into their space. Right. It was really yep. cool. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, those are the things that I think are, are interesting. I do. I love that we're celebrating next year, sort of the 50th anniversary. But I also think it's it's like, great. What are we going to do for the next 50? Because we are we're kind of at a tor- turning point as to what opera yes. and classical music are and what they're going to be doing in the next handful of years. So I think it's a it's a time to celebrate and reflect. But I also think it's a time to really focus on cool. What are we going to do now? Um, the old models, the old models that this thing was founded on to get rid of, like they they didn't work anymore. But now, cool, we're going to have to reshift and rethink right. our, our models now. I think it's a very appropriate that they're doing the 50th anniversary because I, I, I feel there are similar organizations that have popped up mm-hmm. uh, all over the place around the same general time period right. uh, in other places. Yeah. There's uh, Opera Europa mm-hmm. uh, and Réunion des Opéras de France, which I probably pronounced incorrectly <laughs> uh, uh, because I cannot pronounce French. Uh, there's uh, also uh, similar organizations that actually predate this one by a fair amount. The mm-hmm. Deutsche Bühnenverein is, is particularly interesting to me. That one is actually from way back in 1846, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. That one's more about uh, representing orchestras in a more sort of a union-esque capacity. Sure. Right, uh, yeah. Mediation uh, about uh, making sure artists are supported uh, internationally uh, mm-hmm. in, in conjunction with the EU and things like that. Right. But I do think that there was a, a kind of a turning point that happened around the late 60s, early 70s, mm-hmm. where things really did genuinely start to shift. Because uh, if you look at the history of opera, uh, if you go back to the very beginning, like the, the very, very beginning, obviously it's literal literal nobility paying for performances. <laughs> Precisely, uh, yeah. But since the first public opera house opened in Venice in 1637, you have this kind of um, compromise that's going on for people trying to put out new ideas that that aren't limited by what the rich, the wealthy, the uh, the higher classes wanted to do um, and and the public. And so uh, the through the 19th century that sort of became it, it sort of the solution became well what the public does is what wants is what's correct. Mm-hmm. Um, however, that also led to some problems. I think when I think of like a uh, 19th century opera financial models. I think of it sort of like a uh, an uh, laissez-faire capitalism kind Baron of way. Baron von decided that he liked this type of music <laughs> and this one soprano Baroness von what's her face. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Well, it's 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 even more than that. It's it's more. Uh, well, I think a good example of this is all the opera houses of New York City, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in histories I've read about the Metropolitan Opera, because um, nowadays, of course, the Met is a huge opera house. You cannot think New York City. Um, uh, and opera without thinking of the Metropolitan Opera. It's very much the dominant sort of uh, thing. For sure. But when it first opened, it was actually a, a one of a number of what we would now consider sort of mid-size opera houses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, it was specifically open to compete with the uh, New York Academy of Music Opera House uh, uh, in 1883. Um, and uh, and really, when you look at, like, even if you just, like, do, like, the Bears sort of Googling and just search for uh, New York City opera companies, what you come up with is kind of interesting because you have a bunch of small opera companies that are still around. You've got the Met. You've got New York City Opera. And then you have a ton 
of mid mid-sized opera companies that all went defunct in the 20s and 30s. Right. Yeah. Um, which which I find really interesting because it's very much this this idea where the driving force of opera was this this competition, right? You wanted to be the biggest possible. The you biggest wanted, dog. Yeah. You wanted to, you wanted to have that monopoly. Right. Uh, for your particular region, uh, and I think uh, not to rag on uh, the Metropolitan Opera too much, but <laughs> they can handle it. It's this, fine. They're fine. Yeah. They're just fine. Uh, but this was even uh, the dominant sort of form of thought. I think even up to uh, when they moved to the Lincoln Center uh, mm-hmm. in the in the late '60s. Right. There's the notorious, uh, obviously the old Met, uh, glorious institution. The acoustics were amazing. Everyone raves about it. Um, they left the building, and they actually sued in order to destroy their own old building so that there would be no competition for the new Met, which yeah. is hurts me from a historic preservationist standpoint. But I also think it's really indicative of this sort of American mindset that was dominant through much of the first half of the 20th century uh, in opera companies, where it was not just about doing well mm-hmm. or producing uh, or producing good art; it was about beating your competitors. Right. Um, and uh, and you know these there were dirty tactics and. Employed. The Met had a clack, which was kind of infamous that they paid to, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, they, they weren't the only ones who had clacks in New York the City. The magic of capitalism, <laughs> right. yeah. Um, but it's, but it, it's, it's kind of wild to me now, uh, as someone who was born, you know, uh, in the early 90s, um, uh, who is now uh, an adult more or less, um, the the attitude so much has changed, and I think it's largely in thanks to organizations like Opera America, to not one of uh, we have to be the biggest dog on the block, mm-hmm. uh, but to one where we all are in this together. There is some intrinsic value to the art we are producing, and therefore uh, it doesn't really matter who succeeds. We don't need these monopolies anymore. Because if you have a monopoly, if you're the only opera co- company in town, and you fold for whatever reason, you don't just lose the company. You 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 lose, you lose opera for yeah. that town, yeah. which is uh, a, a big problem with I think with a lot of regional companies. Um, and that's certainly something that became more prevalent, I think, in my lifetime, especially given the uh, Great Recession and the loss of a lot of upper companies there over the past decade or so. Yeah, well, and I also think, you know, you mentioned this uh, this American concept of the early part of the 20th century of, like, you know, kind of being the biggest dog. You know, right. Opera America in a lot of ways was was another, you know, American concept in, in sort of collective support and, mm-hmm. you know, almost a union-esque sort of gathering, you know, where we all come together, where if we all fight as one for these common causes then we all win like you know rising tide lifts all boats and all that sort of stuff yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 so i mean i think it is really funny that you know the the initial things that sort of made the met what it is were an american principle but another american principle of like let's all get together and support each other was was the thing that ended up kind of rescuing us from from that model and creating a national support system so not just in new york city as as great as new york city is big fan like going don't live there want to see opera what am i going to do i'm going to need to see it somewhere else in the country can't just be the met I, not not to rag on the met too much because we do a lot in this show but you know I, they, they're just such a a, a big notorious example because in many ways I think they were sort of the uh, poster child for what seemed to be the success of that model, and of course now they're they're struggling because they have they have such a massive opera house, they can't possibly fill all those seats uh, right. here in the 21st century. Um, and, and I think the 21st century, as you said before, is sort of a uh, 
is something we're still figuring out. Uh, and I believe you brought in an article, I forget uh, where it's from, uh, talking about this uh, that you wanted to talk about with this conversation, I sure too. Did. Yeah, did, yeah. Uh, you know, so... Uh, on National Public Radio, NPR has has a, a show called All Songs Considered, um, and they put out an episode today where uh, Tom Heisinger talked about the uh, the 2010s as uh, classical music's quote decade of reckoning. So Heisinger sat down with uh, Washington Post and Majette just to kind of recap what's gone on in the last uh, 10 years of classical music. And you know, I know this show is specifically about opera, but again, with that whole rising tide lifting all boats thing, I think going macro <laughs> and talking about all <laughs> classical music and and how we can all fight to to keep ourselves you know in you know slightly out of survival mode is good um one of the quotes from the article the actually uh, the the whole broadcast is very interesting to listen to but this quote I think really did kind of sum up a lot of things that are going on in terms of the last decade of classical music. Symphony orchestras and opera companies floundered financially, some going belly up and others rebounding as newly created organizations flourished. Women seemed to take a few steps forward and a few backward. While five of the last ten music Pulitzers were awarded to women, their music was conspicuously absent from our symphony halls. Mm. And tragically, both women and men in many facets of classical music were the victims of sexual abuse and harassment. That's kind of music in a nutshell over the last ten years. <laughs> that, or so. really, that really sums it up, doesn't it? <laughs> I really, yeah, and and the whole, you know, the the notion about and and Heisinger and uh, Majette talk about this a little bit, you know, sort of women's place in classical music. I know yeah. we're, you know, it's literally half the population, but it's really interesting that you know five of the last ten female music Pulitzers were were awarded to women. Um, most recently, 2019's was Ellen Reed's really amazing opera Prism. It's so good. It you you, you can you can buy it. I highly 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 recommend it's, so good yes listeners if you haven't seen the trailer for prism online get to stepping it is a really gorgeous piece of theater you get the that whole thing on itunes you yeah know, it's good oh, to go so stunning um but yeah you know it's funny because they they mention these like strides for women and how all of these things happen unfortunately when they talk about taking a step back one of the uh, case study examples that used was chicago's very own chicago symphony orchestra uh, the, uh, yeah the, <laughs> the nugget that was presented was of the 54 excuse me the 54 composers presented last season zero were women zero uh, oh, and that's man. frustrating especially when you think about the relationships with female composers that the symphony has had you know augusta reed thomas the aforementioned ellen reed hmm. missy mazzoli being you know the current composer in residence there so i'm hoping that this coming season changes that but I think it's, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, they're they're kind of late to the party on what we've been talking about for the last few episodes, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, but on, again, a more macro, all classical music level, which is they're talking about the diversity in classical music from composers to administrators to performers and how if, you know, if we are going to, you know, there's that long running joke that classical music's been dying for, what, 200, 300 years. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. But <laughs> again, you know, we are now entering yet another new era of classical music. And so as this turns into the next decade, what are we going to do to address these concerns that are now, you know, very obvious and frankly and thankfully talked about more often? Mm -hmm. How are we going to increase the diversity that happens in classical music? And I, it was really great to see on a national broadcast that being that being discussed, but in but in positive ways of like, look how far we've come. We've done a couple of things that, you know, aren't so great, but on the whole, we can see that this ball is moving forward. And I should I want to point out not just women, but uh, people of color, uh, different uh, genders, uh, um, uh, different sexualities. Uh, we, we've seen a big explosion of those uh, uh, in terms of representation over the past few years, but it is not mainstream yet. Mm -hmm. And I think if opera America wants to uh, uh, 
really, you know, support the intrinsic value of opera. They need to uh, 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 continue and increase their support of these marginalized groups and bringing them into uh, the art form as a whole. Because mm-hmm. um, when you get right down to it, you know, opera has such a an amazing expressive power that you don't really have, um, at least not in the same way, uh, with any other art form. Uh, and so... At least to me, uh, whenever I, uh, I I listen to you know uh, a really great piece, uh, I, I can I think of like what pieces were missing, you know, right. um, uh, you know uh, what pieces have yet to be recorded are not performed just because the people who wrote them were not on the inside of the circle, the people who were uh, struggling back under the sort of laissez-faire uh, mm-hmm. 19th century compete, compete, compete. And if, if you don't have enough money, if you don't have enough privilege, get out. Uh, you know, it, it's those same people who are still suffering. I, I would love to see um, more operas being produced, not just by uh, living composers, but l- by past composers uh, um, who, uh, who are people of color, who are women. Uh, I, 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 I would give so much to hear a good studio recording of a Harry Lawrence Freeman opera. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think that we are very much at a turning point, and I think Opera America um, has been doing a good job of following those trends, supporting those trends, but I do think that— And celebrating them. Exactly. And I, do, and I think that opera companies would do well to continue to internalize this concept of we're all in this together— we all need to work together to make sure that everyone's voice is heard, everyone's voice can contribute to this great art form we call opera. Um, and uh, I hope they do that. <laughs> I hope they do too. You know, it's funny, I, you know, so, you know, the thing about, I know we talked, you know, when we're talking about this article and this this broadcast, you know, the um, we, we're talking a little bit more about music, uh, the, you know, sort of the women advancing in music. But part of the reason for that is because Majette is the, the author of the Washington Post piece that really started to break open the sexual harassment in classical music. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I, that's kind of, you know, it's kind of been where her focus is of, as of late. But, you know, she also said something that I thought was really interesting is the music isn't the problem. It's the way we're offering it. Oh, so, wow. So, yeah, I mean, that really kind of breaks it down into, again, the problem with big houses like the Met is that, you know, some people who have not had the chance to experience this art form before may be intimidated or scared of or turned off by going to something that is so big and those Sputnik chandeliers give me nightmares. (laughs) I mean, I totally love it, but I also am familiar with it now. You know, the first time I saw it, it was very like, you know, am I high right now? I don't know what's happening, but, um, but yeah, no, I mean, the thing is, you know, the, it, it's clear that there there is an audience for this. They are hungry Absolutely. for an experience, you know, and the question is, you know, what are opera companies going to do in this new era to give it to them? Absolutely. Totally agreed. I mean, I could talk about this forever, but unfortunately we got to move on to the two-minute drill. <laughs> I'm sure this will be a, a topic we always come back to over and over again um, because it's important and it's something that I think opera needs to fully internalize in order to continue on for another 50 years. And so we're going to keep shouting it in the corner until everyone listens. (laughs) Me and Ashley just shouting away in the corner. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Mirror, mirror on the wall. What's the fairest festival of them all? Well, it's Salzburg, apparently. Uh, That's for this year. Uh, That's up next. Only on Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago. You're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. 
listed as a must-listen podcast for opera by Playbill. Thanks, somebody, guys. Somebody said that? <laughs> they did. Okay. I know. Too bad we can't link to that review uh, in uh, a podcast. But, you know, <laughs> go to Playbill, search Opera Box Score. Week after week, Opera Box Score is expanding its reach, discussing news of the business, talking to opera's most important players, and infotaining the newcomers and longtime fans alike. Oh, I'm infotaining. That is for sure. <laughs> you are the That's queen how I describe myself yes. and you as well. If you are new to the podcast, look back in our archives to find interviews with the likes of genre-defying countertenor Anthony Roth Costanzo. He follows us on the Twitters. In, in demand opera librettist Mark Campbell. He's written the libretto to everything that's come out in the past like everything. five years. Mm. And Richard Tucker Award winner Eileen Perez. My Instagram girlfriend. Oh, that's Thanks, Eileen's publicist. You can also use the podcast as the crib sheet and impress your friends with opera facts from segments like the OBS Hall of Fame where we take a deep dive into the works and artists you need to know. Or, if you are thirsty for blood in a way that only opera can satisfy, check out our TKO segments where two singers take off their tiaras and put on the gloves for a supremacy in some of the most difficult arias in the repertoire. Actually, I don't think you've been here for a TKO segment yet, but I have not lost everyone that I've done. Challenge accepted. I I think I've won one. (laughs) Access the complete archives by adding Opera Box Score to your podcast favorites. So this is the thing. Like, if you want to see everything we've done, you have to go to the Stitcher or to the iTunes podcast, and you have to just say, I like this podcast, I want it in my ear holes. It's, you know? it's a thumb tap, kids. Yeah. Can you tap your thumb? And I think you, you can. can scroll you just back go to and that see, Stitcher machine. Yeah, and you can scroll back and see all the shows that we've done, and then you'll be happy. And you can like have endless hours of listening, especially now that school's back in session, you've got to tune out your teacher while you're in lecture, you know. Mm-hmm. Or while you're waiting in line to pick up the kids at whatever elementary school or they're at. Or if you're trying to get a master's degree in opera, take my advice and don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> or scroll through the archive box by clicking on the Future and Past Shows tab at operaboxscore.com. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in Opera Land over the past week. Friends of the pod, countertenor Jakob Josef Orlinski was named Gramophone's Young Artist of the Year. And another friend of the show, Christopher Lowry, was part of the cast for the Contemporary Opera winner. And that's for Brett Dean's Hamlet. Famed conductor Tsubin Mehta conducted his final performance last week as the musical director of the Israel Philharmonic. He's been with the orchestra for, for 50 years. The Salzburg Festival was named Festival of the Year by Musical America, and that's for the year 2020. It's only the second time an institution, rather than an individual, has received an Of the Year award from the organization. And I think this really opens up the field for a certain podcast of the year in 2021, say... Rouse Pasta Sauce, a staple of the New York spaghetti scene, has a new spokesman in the form of Michael Amante. He operatically sings the praises of the sauce in Italian in a number of TV spots, claiming he'll drink the stuff right out of the can. Delicious? Chicago Opera Theater has announced that Matthew Riso will be the next emerging composer featured as part of their Vanguard initiative for the upcoming season. The program seeks to promote and facilitate the creation of new works for the operatic stage. The New York Times has published a profile on People's Symphony Concerts, which has seats that go for as little as $8.33 in New York City, no less. We'll have a link to that article on our website. Last week, on what would have been Dmitry Svorstovsky's 57th birthday, his hometown of Krasnoyarsk held a celebration of the baritone's life. 
Worostovsky made a great impression on his hometown, which had already named the local airport after him, and prominently features an 11-and-a-half-foot statue of the opera singer. Renee Fleming was on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me last week to talk about singing during the Super Bowl and to test her mettle against the song of our de- generation, namely Baby Shark. A link to that will be on our website as well. Russell Thomas was interviewed by the Washington Post earlier this month to talk about the pitfalls of singing Otello as an African-American and the dangers of pigeonholing roles for singers based on race in opera. The Post also published an article about Lillian Ivanti, the first African-American to perform with a ma- major European opera company. Despite her success in Europe, Ivanti had ran into trouble at home in her chosen career. Edwin F. Felmus and Company, well-known music publishers in the opera world, are shutting down the presses this week, and it looks like it's going to be permanent. Most, but not all, of the catalog, however, will remain available online and through other publishers. A 12-year-old got his review of a concert in New Zealand's Auckland Philharmonic Orchestra published in Spinoff. Quote, the music was all great, but there was just so much clapping that it kept disrupting my thoughts on the pieces, wrote Harper Chapman of the program, which included Ravel's Piano Concerto and Bolero. He also asked the audience to get off his lawn. On the disabled list, Ildar Abdrazakov will be out of the titular role in the Chicago Lyric production of Don Giovanni this November. He will be replaced by Lucas Meacham. And Leonardo Capalbo uh, will p- replace Stefan Pop in the titular role of Offenbach's Tale of- Tales of Hoffman at New National Theater, Tokyo. And on this day, October 21st, the first completed version of Mazorsky's uncompleted Sorchinsky Fair premiered in 1913. The famed conductor and brass instrument enthusiast Georg Scholte was born in 1912. In 1847, it was the birth of librettist Giuseppe Giacosa, author of La Boheme, Tosca, and Madame Butterfly. And Jacques Offenbach's Orpheus in the Underworld had its premiere in 1858. Andre Grete's Richard the Lionhearted also had its premiere on this day in 1784, and that is your two-minute drill. Oh, I love that piece so much. Unironically, I love ta- I love uh, uh, Morpheus in the Underworld. It's just an absolute delight. <laughs> I loved your eleven minute, two minute drill. That was awesome. You oh, got a lot man. in there. This was uh, this week was stuffed with yeah. opera news, and we actually cut some stories too. We didn't get to talk we about. We cut that. a lot of yeah. stories. I don't know what was happening, but something was in the water this week. Let me tell you, everyone. So, of those many, 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 many stories, what caught your interest oliver well i was the one that wanted insisted that we talk about this kid's review of the auckland (laughs) philharmonic i thought it was such a sweet story this woman um brought her nephew to see a concert and he's already like a classical music enthusiast so Mm -hmm. it wasn't like he was being you know he's not a complete neophyte you know but just to hear like that children speak truth (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I just love to hear just like such brutal honesty. Like, God, stop clapping! Like I don't. I'm trying to like think about what I just heard. You know, it's so great I mean, and so true. As someone who who made those exact kinds of comments when he was 12, I I, I really was like I was having like flashbacks to my youth. <laughs> it was it was amazing. I loved it. How about you, Ashley? What what caught your interest today? You know, I just spent a little bit of time giving a giving a little bit of poo poo to New York City. But I'm gonna say good on them for two things. Uh, our you know our buddies in 
in the in the pasta sauce company employing that <laughs> opera singer. Um, you know what? Like we've. We've chatted a couple of times over the last few weeks about finding sort of fun, low-key, borderline lowbrow ways yeah. to make this more accessible and entertaining mm -hmm. to a different set of folks. And I think this is one of those ways to do it because, you know, this is a guy who's not taking himself too seriously. And, you know, the, the spots are actually really charming and fun to watch. Um, he says he'll drink it out of a jar. I hope they never put that on camera because that is something that's going to skeeve me out. Uh, and, and then also, yeah, to our, to our buddies that are putting out those uh, $8.33 tickets for the People's Symphony concerts, uh, you can't get anything in New York City for $8, not even pizza. It's amazing. So if you can get yourself a lovely evening of some classical highfalutin music, I say have at it. So good job, New York, for those two lovely things this week to bring it to, to bring our art form to more masses. That article is a, is a really neat one. It's, it's a New York Times article about the uh, People's Symphony concerts, um, and uh, it talks about a lot of the pitfalls and strategies associated with um, getting tickets that cheap. Um, and a, a lot of it comes down to artists, you know, taking, you know, a, a little bit smaller cut, you know, some creative funding, some, uh, some fundraising, some generous donors. Um, but that's the kind of thing that I, I, I really think that more um, classical music organizations would, would prioritize. Because there are... I, I cannot tell you how many people my age, you know, I hang out, I hang out with broke theater people. You know, that's, that's, that's my friend group uh, and who I am as a person. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, whenever I'm just, you know, as I always am talking about opera um, uh, and they're like, oh, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, I kind of want to go to that. And then, and, and then, uh, and then like, about how much would it be? And then I tell them and I'm like, oh, maybe I won't go to that. And it, it just, it crushes me every time because I, I absolutely understand, you know, as, as someone who can't really afford to uh, go to the opera as much as he would like either uh, it, it, it can be really, uh, it, it's a huge barrier. Even if, even if you had just a few um well-advertised cheap seats uh, mm -hmm. for every performance. Yeah. I mean, I think it would it would it would make a world of difference, not just for the individuals who are seeing it, but for the reputation opera has among non-opera people. Um, and uh, and I, I I really love the idea of uh, the People's Symphony Concert, also really well named, uh, where you have well, the that's like the communist way of saying things, right? Like <laughs> the people's cheese, the people's yeah, bread. Like <laughs> everyone wears one color. We all think yeah. the same. Thing yeah. sure, you know we could also you know in in bringing this to the masses you know pipe dream maybe we maybe we start putting more known accessible to the masses artists together with classical music a little more like how about guys Sugar Ray and an opera company so we have like fly <laughs> yeah. next to car all around the world statues crumble for me La Moretta was a rebel like I mean we yeah. could we could find ways to make this happen, but I mean I, th I mean there's something about that I mean I was just listening to an interview with Rachel Ray recently and. Her star rose because she was just so relatable, and like the things that she does are things that people can afford. You right? Know? Like you watch yeah. her show, absolutely. It's like I can do that. Mm -hmm. I can drop an egg on the floor. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, you know? yeah. I'm like I can buy pre-made stock and make this taste better. You know? Right. And uh, I don't need Rachel Ray's advice in the kitchen, but I do enjoy <laughs> how. Oh, wow. No, just how accessible she has made. No, but like you can you, know, you can enjoy the. It's almost like you're watching your friend cook. Yeah, like you're exactly. hanging out in your friend's kitchen and. You know, so yeah. yeah, again, like I like you said, like I I don't necessarily need her cooking advice, but yeah. I really enjoy being a part of that cooking advice. Yeah. Um I also want to just say that um I had something oh Renee Fleming, I listened to Wait Wait Don't Tell Me every week, but I guess I did not hear it. Did anybody hear this? I, I, I did, yes. Yeah. Okay. You were the only person who didn't Oliver. Oh my for gosh. Shame. I'm, I'm the worst. 
And Russell Thomas, we read his letter uh, last year when he was talking about race and opera. Mm-hmm. And so Russell Thomas continues to go uh, to the mat for us on this yeah, topic. He, he, so thank you, Russell Thomas, yes. for always addressing these issues. Mm-hmm. I also want to uh, point out uh, Meta's uh, uh, retirement. He's 83 years old and he had cancer. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, he'd been in the orchestra for 50 years. He's a machine. I, I feel like I have like a, a kind of a personal connection because uh, uh, he conducted uh, my, uh, well, my dad's recording of uh, The Three Turin Tenors Dot. in Concert? No. <laughs> 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 no, uh, the recording of Turin Dot with Pavarotti Sutherland. It, oh, yeah, it, I it, love it, that recording. It's such a good recording. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, I always like to say it was the, it's the it's the recording that didn't necessarily make me love opera, but it was the recording I loved before I realized I loved opera. No, it's mm-hmm. um, I, I, I listened to that. And, yeah. I listened to that recording over and over and over again. And a big part of that for me was the conducting, the way the orchestra balanced with these huge voices, um, uh, the, the the builds, the the huge releases of passion. Uh, I, it's a, it's a very special recording and one that is very uh, personal to me as part of my opera development. So I. Uh, I think he deserves some rest. <laughs> yeah, but what yeah. what in what other field uh, do artists work until they're eighty three years old? Uh, it's or do anybody work until they're eighty three years old? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're a millennial, we're all gonna be working until we're eighty three. Yeah, so that's, that's true uh, enough. True yeah. enough. Well, and some of us that are older than millennials <laughs> will probably be doing that too. Uh, well, Oliver's already. Oh, by the way, so. um, Andre Gretry's uh, Richard the Lionheart, Coeur de Lion. Uh, is going to be performed at the Spectacle de Versailles, I think, very shortly. Um, Russ, uh, what's his name? Marshall Pinkowski of Opera Atelier and his wife, who's the choreographer, Jeanette Lajeunesse Zing. They are the stage director and choreographer of a production of that very opera. Coming up, really, it might be happening as we speak. Um, from October 10th to the 13th. Oh, it happened already. Well, at any rate, <laughs> we're all up. Whenever to they put an opera on Versailles, like I wish I was there. Um, Anyway, Marshall Pinskowski and uh, Jeanette, Jeanette, La Jeunesse Zing uh, have their company in Toronto, and I hope to make it out there for um, Don Giovanni with our friend of the show, uh, Douglas Williams, as Don Giovanni. And I also want to say that Salzburg may be uh, the pot, I mean, the festival of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and since we are probably the podcast of the year, once probably. they acknowledge us, Pretty much, I think Salzburg yeah. should. In, I think Salzburg should invite us <laughs> to just you know test their wares to make uh, sure they really do deserve that I'm, title. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we it's it's all about quality control, guys. Yeah. You know, speaking of Don Gio, like uh, you know, as much as I'm kind of bummed about Abdrazakov, I am really excited to see Lucas Meacham come mm. back to Chicago. And Richie Sorensen is going to come to Chicago to sing Don Anna, oh, so I'm going to make her some pasta it's... with raw pasta sauce. Here, so. <laughs> just don't drink it out of the jar. That's all. I have. Yeah. I'll take a swig for you. All right, we got to wrap it up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. All right, Oliver, do you have a good call for me? Okay, quick ones. Uh, Larry Brownlee in concert tomorrow. If you're listening to the podcast, I'm sorry, but if you're listening live, tomorrow at Lyric Opera with uh, Whitney Morrison, Craig Terry, Solomon Howard, and Christopher Kenny. Uh all African-American artists. And speaking of African-American artists, there's an opera company in Chicago called the South Shore Opera Company, which is celebrating its 10th anniversary this Sunday with mm-hmm. a gala concert. They are Chicago's black excellence of music. So go support them. Could I say that? Can I get away with that? Uh, well, <laughs> we think they are awesome. We think they are all sorts of excellence. We think they're great. You can tweet your complaints at Oliver uh, Oliver's page, not the not the podcast. <laughs> uh, I, have a, I have a little, uh, um, speaking of Larry Brownlee, uh, 
the uh, if you follow his Facebook page or his Instagram, he recently posted uh, an absolutely adorable little assignment that uh, his uh, uh, son, daughter, I'm not sure. Um, I think it was his kid. Yeah. yeah, his kid. Uh, he did it. Uh, he, they interviewed him uh, for their class about, uh, and he said his job was like to sing your high to notes. His job was to sing high notes, and he drew like a little picture of him on stage. It was absolutely adorable. And it's pretty accurate. It, it's yeah, it basically nails it. Ashley, do you have a good call for us? Oh, do I? Uh, <laughs> there's a there's a Fox Business headline that makes my whole day. Uh, Lizzo boosts flute sales as classical music Amazing. has renaissance on. Instagram. Uh, and I also want to make sure that Toby knows that I called this. I changed his life a few weeks ago when I introduced him to Lizzo, so you are welcome. Uh, I love that there are more people that are becoming excited about and appreciating flute music all because of Queen Lizzo. Uh, it's amazing. And she's a pretty good flutist, too. She's she, she's got she some can chops. Before she, she was a hip-hop artist, she was a professional flutist. She, she's really good. There's yeah. there's a really, uh, not to double up on my good calls, but there's a video I saw bouncing around of a Lizzo meeting her old like band director, uh, like, you know, uh, from when, you know, whenever she was uh, in high school and it's such a touching reunion oh. and uh, and everyone was sharing it like, you know, the importance of music education and it really is so important and just really heartwarming stuff. All right, we got to wrap it up. Uh, that is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general managers at WNUR are Henry Moskal and Somil Sangvi. Our announcer is Norm Waddell, who can be found at VoxerShorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by, by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from OperaBase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Ashley Hardgrave and our special guest, Lindsay Metzger, I'm Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as things start to get real spooky. We're back on Monday, October 28th at 9 p.m. Central for our Halloween Spooktacular. Join us then. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago, Chicago Sound Experiment.